This podcast is brought to you by the Ohio Writing Project. OWP supports teachers from all over Ohio and celebrates the professionalism, expertise, and talent of our state's educators. Ohio Writing Project, teachers teaching teachers. a production of the Ohio Writing Project. My name is Noah Waspy, and if you're listening to this when it first comes out, I hope you had a great summer. And today's poem, you know, is in honor of us returning to school. It's called School by Daniel J. Langton. I was sent home the first day with a note. Danny needs a ruler. My father nodded. Nothing seemed so apt. School is for rules. Countries need rulers. Graphs need graphing. The world is straight ahead. It had metrics on one side, inches the other. You could see where it started and why it stopped a foot long. How it ruled the flighty pen, which petered out sideways when you dreamt. I could have learned a lot, understood latitude, or the border with Canada, so stern compared with the south and its unruly river with two names. But that first day, meandering home, I dropped it. So in a minute, I'm going to tell you all about our guest, and we'll get to the interview. But first, I want to talk to you about um, OWP and what OWP has going on this fall. In addition to the Ohio Writing Project's master's degree program, there are tons and tons of credit workshops going on. For example, in October, on October 17th is when the class starts, there's an Implementing Literacy Practices course. Um, And that workshop is entirely online for one month, one graduate credit. There's also the weekend workshop, November 5th and 6th. And then there's a lot of stuff coming up in the spring of 2023. Just Google Ohio Writing Project, or you can click on the link to the site in the show notes. OWP also does professional development with schools. And again, click the link in the show notes, Google Ohio Writing Project uh, to figure out how you can do that, to find out how you can do that. So for this episode, we interviewed Chris Tavani, the author of tons and tons of books, and her work is just so impactful. And if you haven't checked it out already, after you listen to this episode, I can't recommend it enough. Her newest book is called Why Do I Have to Read This? Literacy Strategies to Engage Our Most Reluctant Students. And the title's a little bit misleading because it's not just about reading. Obviously, literacy is a main focus but it's really about strategies and teacher tools that you can use to reach all of the students in your classroom, especially those who struggle to engage with whatever it is that we're teaching. So uh, here it is, my interview with Chris Tavani. One of the anecdotes that you share that really hit me hard, because I think we've all been that teacher or known that teacher is the story about Dickie in the professional development that you were um, running. Could you tell us, tell that story? Yeah. Uh, You know, this was years ago. I was working in a middle school in a a state that was heavily tested. I will not say what that state uh, is, but um, this was an eighth grade science teacher who I had been invited to come in and do some demonstration teaching, share some 
uh, science literacy strategies, and they were working on, I think, I think it was force in motion. And, you know, that is not my forte as a language arts teacher, but, um, you know, after three days, two days being with this, this group of teachers, I just was getting really frustrated because they were just kind of blaming the kids, blaming the kids, blaming the kids. And, you know, for me, like, I think when we blame kids, we give a lot of our power away. And so, I finally just had, and it, it probably wasn't the most professional thing in the world, but um, you know, I just, I, I, I said to this teacher, I said, look, when you talk about coaching basketball, there's all this energy and excitement that you have. And then when you talk about teaching science, it just is like this big flip. And so when I'm in the classroom and I'm feeling kind of discouraged and things aren't going the way that I want, I, you know, I asked myself a couple of questions. One being, you know, is my content boring? And, and of course, I don't think my content's boring. I've dedicated my life to it. So then I kind of think about, okay, well, is the lesson boring? And maybe do I need to incorporate it into this, you know, more compelling topic? And then if that's not the case, then I maybe need to just can think about, am I boring? Am I just standing up there, just blah, 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 and boring the kids to death? And so then I turned to him and I said, so, you know, is your content boring? Is the lesson boring? Are you boring? And that just kind of blew up the whole professional development with that guy he stormed out and that was the end of it and you know i think back on that 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 story that i could have handled it better but i also think back about um like how do we bring our excitement of, of what we've dedicated our life to in front of children and i've been on twitter a lot lately kind of trolling one of our state representatives who is a big embarrassment which you know I'm, that's not good either but um i've been reading a lot of teachers talking about you know uh, you know, kind of edgy celebrities telling them to be more engaging. And, and, and I think that, you know, it's, our job isn't to entertain our kids. Mm -hmm. That's, that's not what we want to do. But I think that idea of thinking about um, why, why do we love what we teach? Mm -hmm. How does that give children power in the world? You know, wh wh what do they need most? And what can we take off our plate that maybe is just something extraneous? And, and I think that sometimes helped me focus this time of year and when I got discouraged on on you know my whole purpose in life is you know not not to make kids score well on tests but to really teach them to be better readers and writers or citizen scientists or historians or like you know creating these citizens that we want to stand in line with at the grocery store um, so I think just going bigger was my whole point about that and to really kind of do a little bit of self-reflection yeah it seems like as you read into like how to make ourselves not boring and how to make our curriculum not boring. It's more, like you said, it's more than being the Robin Williams character who has kids stand on top of their desks. That's not as meaningful. That's not meaningful learning, even though it could be fun. On page 26 of your book, you really outline something that I don't think I had thought about before. We think about like all these things that we can't influence like when we think about the kids that we're having a hard time reaching like their parents do this they have this home life but when we focus on those things we're only focusing on things that we can do nothing about see when you delineated like what are the things that cause students to disengage what can i influence um in class when they're with me what can i influence when i'm planning that was one of the smartest pieces of thinking that i've ever read so i was thinking maybe we could start there with like getting doing i don't know doing the work of engagement in a meaningful way let's start with planning and maybe we should start with cya <laughs> so yeah cya so one of this one of the organizing features of this book 
um, are these things called CYA structures. And I was, I was uh, chatting with a friend of mine, her name is Sam Bennett. She's actually my instructional coach and good friend. And she said to me, she goes, okay, how do you prepare for these demos that you do? You walk into classrooms where you've never met the kids before. Um, you know, oftentimes you're doing it in a content area. You don't know the content very well. How, how do you do it? And I said, well, I've got a CYA. And she goes, well, what do you mean? I said, well, I know there's going to be kids in there who aren't going to be able to read the text I bring. So I have to have, you know, a couple of choices. Um, I know there's going to be kids in there who, who say the topic is stupid. So I have to think about why it matters. And um, she said, well, this book that you're working on, are you just going to call and call, you know, are you going to refer to them as CYA strategies, cover your ass strategies? And I said, well, no, I can't call it that. And so we started brainstorming and she said, you know, there's this guy named Stephen Wolk who wrote this great book and I'm trying to, the title just flew out of my head. I had it written down so I wouldn't forget it. Um, on being good. And he defines, he defines curriculum as everything teachers do. And so my friend said, why don't you call them, um, uh, instead of calling them CYA, you can call them CYA you know, in front of teachers, but in front of mixed company, um, curriculum, you anticipate structures. And so that's sort of how we, um, that was one of the structures of the book, this idea of like, can we anticipate some things that may cause kids to disengage. And so as a reading teacher um, and as a writing teacher, I know kids are gonna disengage because they the text is too hard or they don't really wanna write about the topic I give them. And so I have to think about that ahead of time and maybe provide multiple texts or provide an audience that they can write to um, that will give them you know, energy to revise. Um, and so those CYA strategies were just ways that teachers could kind of do some long-term planning with before they even meet the kids. And then they could also use them as a formative assessment. So like if you have a kid on Wednesday who is totally disengaged, you could go through and you could think about, okay, why did he quit? Did he quit because the text was too hard? Did he quit because he didn't see um, why the topic was compelling? Does he need a new case study? Maybe he doesn't have some strategies he needs to use to access the text. Maybe the tool I'm asking them to hold their thinking with. He doesn't know what to do with. So I think what's nice about those CYA strategies is you can use them to long-term plan to anticipate kids' needs, but then you can also use them as this quick kind of formative assessment to maybe kind of think about, okay, why is that kid not doing anything today? How can I re-engage him? Yeah, and there's some, a lot of folks who've read your previous books will know that a lot of your work is the, those starts with that formative assessment and figuring out what many lessons we need next or uh, using inner voice, inner thinking sheets, inner voice sheets, sorry, um, or in using conversation calendars. And this CYA structures is like the a beautiful complement to that work so that we're not just reacting, but we also have a plan in place. Um, so I wanted to dig into one of those life hacks that you like it was a life-changing life hack for me when Allison and Marchetti and Rebecca Odell are talking about like how to teach a certain thing and they're trying to think through how to plan that or think through how to help students they always ask like what do writers do and then they try to build their lessons around that you were talking about a I think a rock cycle lesson that you were trying to help teachers with at one point in the book and retroactively I think the thing that you learned from it was you ask the question, what are professionals in this subject area? What kind of work do they do? Can you talk about how you use that question in the planning process? Because I thought it was brilliant. 
Well, I think it's just another way to engage kids, right? With that, um, you know, you you are very involved in a writing project in Ohio and that idea, like we had learned from our, our, you know, our heroes, Don Graves and Donald Murray, that we need authentic audiences. We need authentic purposes for our writing. And I think, I think that still rings true today. And so one of the things that was missing in that last, in that, you know, demonstration that I was doing in, uh, with the rock cycle was, you know, kids saw no purpose, you know, like, so what I'm learning about metamorphic rock. Why does that even matter? And so I think, um, if I would have known now, what, you know, if I would have known then what I know now, we would have couched it in, okay, what are the kids going to create that actual geologists make that they could share with somebody in the audience? And so, um, you know, not, 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 not the audience, but out in the world. So could they, um, you know, Colorado was working with a science teacher just this year around a geology unit, and they investigated uh, earthquakes. We have a ton of earthquakes that happen in Colorado. Like every day we get them, we just don't feel them. And so one of the things that they were doing, were creating these earthquake maps because that's what geologists do. But then they were also creating like, um, you know, emergency procedures. Like what do you do if you're in an earthquake? Um, do you have a go bag that they were able to share with their families? And so I think every time I can track back um, to that idea of, all right, you know, if you're in a history class, what do historians make? If you're in a language arts class, what do real writers make? Um, what do math people that work in math areas create that that help, I guess, the public learn the information that they're learning? And I and I think now more than ever before, I think since COVID, kids are just like like if they don't see a purpose, they're just shutting down. They're not jumping through the hoops like they used to. And I know that sounds like my grandma, but like it just they you know kids turned off their screens and the world did not stop. They passed classes and the world continued. And so I think now they're just saying, okay, tell me why this matters and show me where, it where it's reflected in the world outside of school. So sometimes I have to do a little research. Sometimes I have to get online and I have to Google, you know, what are things that, you know, different professionals in the world create that I could bring to my classroom as models um, for them to share with our community. And the more local I can go, the better. And like that question is such a good starting point for the smart kind of planning that we want to do. Once again, I'm going to say it one more time, just I want to make sure that people use this in their planning. When you're not, if you're teaching science or social studies, any of the literacy subjects, math, what are the professionals in the subject area? What kind of work do they do? This is the question that's going to help you unlock the answer. Why do I need to learn this? Yeah, and I, I think that's connected to a belief too, right? So I think sometimes teachers believe you have to have all these facts before you can actually think and make and do. Whereas the core belief that drives my practice is, okay, no, we, we got to learn the facts so we can do better products and go deeper. And so like for me, I'm always trying to think about what's compelling before the standards. I know that's kind of, you know, heretical to some, but, you know, after if I get a compelling topic, then I can go back and figure out which standards I'm going to go for that I want the kids to hit. But as you mentioned in the book, it's not heretical to cognitive science like that. I like making it stick is such a cool book. If people haven't read it, they should read it after they read your new book. Um, making it stick by Peter Brown at all. You can you don't have to learn all the little facts about something yeah. first. In fact, sometimes like we've all learned this way, right? The hard way, <laughs> like where we just jump in and then we're in overhead and then we have to figure it out as we go. 
Sometimes yeah. that's how our unit plans end up going, right? Sure. Yeah. If we've had to switch grade levels or subject <laughs> levels, right? Yeah. Or even if we're trying to fix, like, hook up our TV thing, you know, I, you just start with the task that you're trying to create. And so if you don't have a task other than the standardized test, eh, I don't think kids are very motivated by that. Yeah. It's just, it's such powerful work because it's, what we're doing is instead of just trying to put on a song and dance or just be emotionally there for kids, like that's all important. But what you're really doing is creating meaningful work for kids to do. And that's one of the keys to unlocking engagement. So yeah, the next place I wanted to go was the, the kinds of disengagement. Like the way you broke it down the book is using the mask metaphor changed a lot like i i think it was close so it wasn't that big of a jump it was perfect for me at least the masks that we wear of disengagement you talk about the masks of anger and apathy the mask of the class clown the mask of invisibility the mask of minimal effort i don't want to focus on all of them because i want people to read the book but i was thinking maybe we could dig into one of them and since we're recording in the springtime I think it's too late for anger and apathy, maybe too late for class clown. So I was thinking maybe we could dig into the mask of minimal effort. Could you talk about what the mask of minimal effort is first? Sure, sure. So or maybe the masks um, in general. You know, it was kind of serendipitous because I turned I turned this book in fall of 2019. So we were pre-COVID. And so the fact this whole mask thing came out wasn't had no connection to COVID at all. Um, but I think the reason I wanted to describe students as wearing masks is because masks are temporary. You can take them off. And so I wanted to also empower teachers that this idea of, you know, a kid is not the class clown all day long. Um, maybe they're a class clown in your room and with instructional strategies using our teacher superpowers, we can help that kid take that mask off. And so that was kind of the whole idea of um, using the mask metaphor. Well, then when COVID hit, we, we really saw like why people wear masks if we didn't know it before. Like those of us who work with teenagers know why kids wear masks, but masks protect us. Masks hide us from things we don't wanna deal with. They, they make it easier to avoid things. And so I thought, yeah, all right, the mask of invisibility, we've all had students, or you wanna talk about minimal effort. I think we've yeah. all had all the masks, right? So the, so the mask of minimal effort kind of presents itself two different ways. You could have the kind of AP kid who knows how to play the game of school, who turns in a paper that he's already turned in for another class, and maybe he just, she or she just cuts or pastes another segment in there and they turn it in and, you know, they don't have to work very hard to get their A or their B. You also have the kid who um, I'm thinking about right now who was undocumented and he knew mm. there was no way he was going on to, to college and he just needed that high school diploma because he would be able to make more money helping his dad do roofs. And so that idea of like, he wasn't necessarily lazy. He was just, is this good enough? Because I have this whole other life that I'm trying to do to keep my family afloat. So that balance of, all right, are not putting effort in 
the the fun challenge I think for me is to think about okay what what does that student need um, why is that student kind of doing a halfway effort um, is it because they've got these really pressing life issues as many of our kids do nowadays that they have to deal with and how can I then facilitate that kid seeing the power of his writing being more um, accurate or you know being able to make it public so this particular kid um, he actually, uh, one of the assignments was they had to write letters to construction companies uh, around hiring undocumented workers. So this company was um, actually a fence company that my brother owned, and he was hiring workers under the table, paying them cash. And my students were like, no, that's horrible. That, that you know. So I said, okay, we need to inform these business owners. And so this student wrote to my brother to explain. And my brother wrote back, and it was just like this really powerful moment of, wow, my writing matters. Um, I could actually use writing to create, you know, to have power in the world. And so that really changed, I think, that kid's life in terms of seeing purpose. Whereas I think sometimes the kids who are um, on the other spectrum, it's, it's a little bit harder because they know how to play the game of school really well. And so mm -hmm. sometimes they need more sophisticated models that they can write to. So, you know, they're just, preparing for the AP exam, perhaps, but, but, but maybe you're showing them New York Times articles and you're asking them to actually submit to a journal that, that you know, is going to push their writing a little bit more. So I think just kind of figuring out why, why they're kind of doing something, um, you know, just minimal effort because maybe they're not being pushed or they don't know how to go bigger or they have other life issues pressing at the other side. And as I read about how you work with students who wear the mask of minimal effort, of course, not everyone's mask is the same. I don't want to act, I don't want to presume that you would do the same thing every time. But in this case, you use that life hack. Who are the professionals in the subject area? What kind of work do they do? That's how you got to your brother or something similar to that, I imagine. And that's how you planned this meaningful work for students to do. But I also heard you talking about, and it's throughout the book, throughout a lot of your work, a lot of engagement is researching your students. Can you talk about some of the teaching tools that you use to research your students that you're trying to get to engage? So, so I just, teenagers just kill me. I love them so much. They're just so weird, right? Like they just intrigue me. I guess that's the better question about it. And so that's something I really wanna figure out is like what makes them tick? What do they care about? Um, another core belief that I hold is that I think students would if they could. Like, I don't think they wake up in the morning and say, I'm going to be, I'm going to, you know, just be really bad today. I'm not going to even try. Nobody, you know, I'm going to fail and look like a fool. Nobody wants to do that. And so I think that idea of like, all right, what do you need? What do you need to go to the next step? And when I think about the greatest teachers in my life, one being Don Graves, um, another one being my dad, it was just this idea like, you know, he was a fence builder. He didn't, he wasn't a teacher, but he helped me learn how to play tennis and, you know, it was just like, okay, show me what you can do. And then let's figure out what you need next. And then I'll either model it for you or we'll find a model and then you'll get a little chance to practice it. So in one of the last chapters of the book, I tried to put these tools in there and there you'll notice similarities from my other books. I just call them think sheets because it's a way for kids to show their thinking that doesn't have to be one right answer. But what's helpful about it, I think from a teacher's point of view is you get um, insight into what kids can do and what they need. And there's like multiple entry points 
for you to go with your teaching because if it's their thinking, it can't be wrong. And so it's a way for me to kind of hold them accountable, not a, not like a bad way to get them in trouble, but okay, if I can't see your thinking, I, I, I don't know how to be interesting or helpful to you. So, um, you know, I've been known to say the only way you can't get points is if you don't put any thinking down because I need that thinking to be a better teacher for you. So they're wide open, um, but they're also, um, you know, I encourage people to tweak them to meet the needs of, of, of your teaching and also the kids' learning styles. But I think there's this nice balance of, okay, here's the content kids need to know. What do they know? And then here are the processes kids need to know. Where, where are they in that, in that process, whether it's critical thinking or reading or writing? I think it's so brilliant. Uh, the, the tools that you use to understand students, and, and I know that you're, it sounds like you're, real curiosity drives. And I think that teachers, we need to be more curious. I'll speak for myself. I need to be more curious about my students. And I think that the whether it's the think sheet or whether it's one of the inner voice sheets, what you your tools do so well is they really help us to better understand what our students are thinking about with the topic, what they know, what they don't know yet, where are the gaps, and what are their off-topic thoughts. Like we get you get such a clear picture of where a student is as a learner that we normally would never get. And I think that that probably also helps us with maybe diagnosing which mask a student is wearing, because sometimes the mask of minimal effort might actually be the mask of invisibility. Sometimes these masks look like one thing, but it turns out it's another thing. We can't know unless we find out what's inside these human beings' heads, right? Yeah, yeah and I, th I think that's such a great point, Noah. And, you know, that idea, like, so I think, I think teachers wear masks too, right? Like, I know I wear masks. I know when I'm you know, you know, we've all been in buildings where every year there's a new initiative, right? And we're just like, oh, we were just getting started with the last one. And now that's off the table and a new one's coming in. And, you know, sometimes I put on the mask of apathy where it's just like, no, I'm just going to wait this one out or no, you know, even anger, because if I act a little feisty, maybe that administrator is going to leave me alone. And I think if we look at the masks that we wear, and we notice when they come on and when they come off and we all don't wear the same mask all the time right they change just like with kids that really helps us to um identify with them and i think just taking that minute to say you know getting shoulder to shoulder with the kid and saying okay what, what do you need right now like you know this this is a really hard time of year uh i know you're, we're tired like what do you need to just kind of make it through it's really interesting. Larry Froslow has this great article um, where he talks about we've got to focus more on um, Maslow's hierarchy and mm -hmm. then we can get to Bloom's. And I thought that's so smart, right? We need to just kind of think about our kids as these human beings that are also suffering and that, we, you know, we're, we're on the same side. We're all trying to get smarter. And, you know, I just, kind of want to let teachers off the hook a little bit because never in my 32 years of teaching have I have I hooked every kid every day for every minute. It's just impossible. And so maybe just kind of picking two or three little victims a day and thinking to yourself, okay, how am I going to get smarter about this kid and what this kid knows? I mean, that's all anybody can ask of us. We can't get to every kid every day. We just can't. It's too many, too many contacts. So I want to bounce back to um planning again I, the book really the i think it's plan smart 
research your kids, adjust plan, repeat. So I think we can bounce back through these topics. I wanted to bounce back to the planning one more time. You said something that was really, really smart. You talked about how controversy, embedding controversy into our plans. You talked about the importance of that. Can you talk about like how important it is to get controversial, to get the importance of kids being able to argue? Yeah, it's a really, it's a really scary time now for teachers, I think, right? You, you know, I think there's the, the, you're trying to keep yourself safe and I, and, and I get that. Um, but I think if we want kids to hit the standard of being able to argue, which is like such a huge writing standard, right? We're all asked to make sure kids can do that. There's gotta be more than one side. If there's nothing to argue, then how do you teach argument? And so I think sometimes if we're too safe, um, boring there's no reason to read or write or talk and so one of the things that i always explain to parents on back to school night and i have a you know letter that i write um that i hand out as well about my job is not to brainwash your child to think the way i think my job is to help your students take a position and then find ways to support that position and be able to convey it so others can hear so that idea of like I want them to have something that they can they can discuss and and that's a little bit controversial because that's going to give them that practice of critical thinking and if, if there's no reason to read or write or talk about it then the engagement just drops and so you know I think the whole time I was writing this book I, I wanted it to just be full of reading strategies right and I was like no like the best reading strategy and the best writing strategy in the world doesn't work if kids are disengaged. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's where that planning piece came in of, all right, so let's give kids some reasons to really dig into our content and our discipline. Let's give them some reasons to read. Let's give them some reasons to write. Let's give them some reasons to discuss. And I think it goes back to that idea of having something that's juicy and compelling that they, that they can dig into. So there's, there's so much more that we could talk about here, but I think it's really smart that communication is probably more important than it was when you first started. I mean, it's always been important, but it's probably even more important now if you're going to embed controversy. And it's smart because in addition to um, what I perceive to be uh, racism and xenophobia and just general fear, part of the concern that parents have the folk I'm, and by parents I mean like the people who are being awful in people's school board meetings part of that is also they're afraid that we'll turn their kids against them or the and they're I, I obviously think that they're wrong but what you're doing Chris I think is you're bringing controversy but you're also letting families know like you have to communicate up front probably throughout I'm not trying to turn your child against you. We're just trying to help them think more deeply. Yeah, and I think, you know, I think back on, you know, I've had some tough parents, but even my toughest parents wanted the best for their kids. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I think when I remind myself that, it, and, and I think you make a good point of like the fear of, of, of their kids turning against them. Yeah, I, I mean, I really, I didn't even consider that, but I think that's maybe that fear that parents have and that fear of the unknown. You know, 
I think during COVID, they might have heard snippets of things in the classroom when it was online and they got these crazy ideas and now there's all this weird stuff going on. And so that idea of like, we both want the best for your kids. And, um, you know, I don't, I don't love parents coming into my room and hanging out, but I think it's always a space that I will welcome them to, right? Because I think if they see how hard we're working, mm -hmm. if they see all the things that we're trying to do to serve their children, um, they, they become allies right and that's mm -hmm. what we want we, we don't we don't right. want to make teachers pa parents think that we're doing these weird things in schools because we're not we're, we're just trying to meet all these demands mm -hmm. um that our kids are coming to us with and we can't let the bad guys win and by bad guys i mean the people who are feeding misinformation to these parents and if we shy away from controversy we're letting the bad guys win but we're also keeping students away from doing meaningful learning when i interviewed Dr. Kim Parker, she said that we can't let them be the only people whose voices are heard in these school board meetings. So I, I just wanted to make sure I threw that out there because controversy is hard right now, but it's probably more important right now. So yeah, let's bring, let's bring it home. You already touched on some of the ideas in this chapter a little bit, but the last chapter is entitled, When You Care, You Fall More. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I think, you know, and I've been guilty of this. I've been guilty of, you know, kind of not do it, giving my 100% all the time. Uh, I think it's it's easy to rely on lesson plans that you've already created and just, you know, kind of go through those motions. Um, but I think if you want to get better every day, no matter how long you've taught, you, 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 you got to keep taking risks and you got to care enough to fall. Um, that, that I think failure is a sign that, you, that you're learning and you're taking some risks to get better. I think teaching is incredibly complex. It's probably the hardest job there is other than maybe being a parent of a stepchild. <laughs> I don't know, but I mean, it's a really hard, hard job and um, no one's, no one, no one has it figured out. And I think if you think you do have it figured out, you're not caring enough to get better for kids. And so, you know, all this extra work the teachers do, these classes they take over the summer, the planning that they do on the weekend, the grading that they do late at night. I mean, that's caring. That's, that's you know, doing things that that's gonna make class better for your students. And when you care enough to try hard and try new things, you fail, but that's okay. You pick yourself up and you just, you try it again because that means you're getting better for kids. Chris Tavani has been a great friend of the Ohio Writing Project over the years. We've um, actually taught classes around several of her books. Um, the one that jumps out of my mind is, uh, So What Do They Really Know? It's a book on assessment. And you can find uh, Chris Tavani's book, uh, most recent book, the one we talked about the most in this interview, Why Do I Have to Read This? Um, in the link in our show notes. You know what else you can find in our show notes? Lots of different ways that you can reach out to um, and become more involved with the Ohio Writing Project. So be sure to check it out. And thanks as always for tuning in to Write Answers. <laughs>